0: All right, church family, maybe you met somebody brand new this morning, I hope you did, and if you are visiting us today, that you felt welcome. Here at, I, here at the Bible Church, we think God's doing some pretty special things, and we would love to tell you more about that, if, if uh, you would like to know about that. Pretty cool place, huh, church family? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. At the center of what we do is God's Word, and our study of God's Word is a central part of our worship here, and so we're going to head off in that direction. Before we get there though, I am fairly confident that none of you have ever heard of an elderly lady by the name of Pauline Jacoby from Dyersburg, Tennessee. You ever heard of her? No. Nope. Well, however, I, I think after this video that you're about to see, it's a short clip, I don't think you will forget about Pauline for at least a little while. So enjoy this piece. <laughs> You're watching Action News 5 at 10. A woman
1: about to be mugged in the parking lot of a Walmart turned things around on her would-be attacker. Without a gun, without pepper spray, she protected herself. I was lucky enough to meet Pauline Jacoby in Dyersburg. She told me about the powerful words that saved her and could possibly save her attacker, too.
2: I will hear from heaven and
1: will forgive their sins. 92-year-old Pauline Jacoby reads her Bible every day. Her strong faith keeps her going in life and in the process may have saved it. Jacoby had just finished putting away her groceries inside her car at a nearby Walmart. Only seconds after Jacoby got into her car, a man jumped in the passenger side. The man told Jacoby he had a gun and that he would shoot her if she didn't give him money. I said, no, I'm not going in my money. Jacoby told him no three times. Then she started to talk to him.
2: You know, as quick as you kill me, I'll go to heaven and you go to hell.
1: She told him to ask God for forgiveness.
2: I said, Jesus
1: is in this
2: car and... He goes with me everywhere I call. Him. And uh, <laughs> he just started looking around, and the tears began coming in his eyes.
1: Jacoby ministered the man for 10 minutes inside her car. And he
2: says, I, I think I'll go home and pray tonight. I said, You know, I have to wait tonight. Yes, you can just pray any time you want to.
1: As tears were rolling down the man's face, Jacoby voluntarily gave him all the money she had,
2: $10. And when I told him I was going to get him the money, I said, don't you spend it on whiskey either. <laughs>
1: the man thanked her for the money, and then...
2: He stole and kissed me, kissed me on the cheek,
1: <laughs> And walked away.
2: He walked away.
0: <laughs> Pauline Jacoby. You know, I came upon this piece not too long ago, quite by accident, actually, and and well after we were into our study series here on Sunday mornings, where we are looking at just a few of the amazing promises that God makes to us in His Word. And as I watched this video, several of these promises that we've been looking at just seem to Just to fall out of this story, reminding me that the things that we're sharing together, these promises from God to us, are not just untested theory. They're they're not just comforting Christian fluff for us to talk about. These promises are difference makers, and we live with them, just like Pauline. 92 years old, she says this, Jesus is in this car and he goes with me wherever I go. She was claiming a promise, wasn't she? The promise of the constant presence of God in her life. We looked at that promise a few weeks ago. She said to the thief that he didn't have to wait till that night to pray, that he could pray right then. And she was alluding to the promise of answered prayer, which we have shared together. She was relying on the promise of God's guidance very clearly as she moved through what was definitely a frightening situation. God was guiding her. We shared that promise together that God guides us and has promised to do so. And she was definitely resting on the promise of eternal life. Right. As she says to her attacker, if you kill me, I'm going to go to heaven. You're not. And she had the promise of God's peace, even as one of life's storms blew into her life right there in a Walmart parking lot. And we talked about the promise of God's peace last Sunday morning. And then Pauline's story began with her reading from her Bible about another promise. And it is the promise of God to forgive sin. Her assailant started crying. Why did he cry? Well, he knew that what he was doing was wrong. He knew that he needed forgiveness. And so God's promise of forgiveness is where we want to be going this morning as we step into the next to last promise that we're going to share in this study series together. Next week, we'll wrap up this series with um, the promise of Jesus' return. And I thought that was a, would be a great way to end this series, thinking about Jesus' return. And unless he returns this coming week, that is where we're going to go. I would love not to finish this series. Wouldn't you like that thought? <laughs> yeah, yeah, as he fulfills the promise and comes this week. But Lord Jesus, come. But if not, find us faithful till you do, right? So if you'll grab your Bible, please, then, and let's head to the book of First John in the New Testament. And take a look at God's promise of forgiveness this morning. Now, 1 John is almost near the very end of your Bible. If you're still learning your way around, it's almost to the end. And, and so you go way to the right in your Bible, 1 John chapter 1. And if you got out of the house without your Bible this morning, if you'll raise your hand, we can just share a copy of God's word with you. But get up there high so we'll see you there. And then also reach into your bulletin. Pull out this little note page, if you wouldn't mind. Because I think that will definitely be of some help to you along the way today. And as we open our Bibles to this place, about 60 years have passed since the death and resurrection of Jesus. John is the last surviving disciple of the original 12 disciples. He's about 90 years old as he writes this little epistle. But he is still incredibly sharp, he is strong. Like Pauline, and he is actively involved in leading Jesus Church, which continues to grow and expand in ways that can only be attributed to the powerful hand of a great and awesome God. But with this growing church, there has also emerged many false teachers and false doctrines and beliefs that are are infiltrating Jesus Church. And of course, that's no surprise. Uh, For wherever God is at work to bring his truth, we know that Satan will also be at work to sow the seeds of lies and confusion in an effort to take the unsuspecting away from salvation, away from faith in the Lord Jesus. And so John writes this little five chapter letter to confront some of the most prevailing and dangerous lies or false teachings that were circulating in the church at that time, but really what he writes about is to remind now second and third generation Christians about the pure, simple, essential fundamentals of biblical faith. He writes to call the Christian back to the basics of true Christianity. In fact, if first John had a subtitle there on your Bible page, it would it would easily read this way. First John Back to the basics, because that's really what it's about. John would say, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to clear away all of the clutter, all of the lies, all the false teaching that has grown up around our faith in Jesus over the last 60 years. And I'm going to tell you what you really need to know to live well for him. That would be the gospel or the the book of first John. So after making some introductory comments in verses one through four, he says this verse five. This is the message that we have heard from him. That is from God or from Jesus himself. So it's not a man-made message. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we say amen Amen and amen. Verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's our promise and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is is not in us. And we'll stop right there with the conclusion of chapter one. And we would just say, oh, Holy Spirit, in this passage that talks about light, may you bring your truth to light for us. Amen. Amen. So John, in this opening chapter, lays out two distinguishing features of a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus, a true and growing Christian. He's going to lay out a number of others throughout the course of these five chapters, but here he lays out two very clearly. And, and, and those who, have this, who are Christians are going to have these distinguishing features about them. They are going to live with a compelling desire and they are going to continually practice a specific promise, as you see it there on your note page. A compelling desire and a specific promise. So John begins by saying that any follower of Jesus who is the real deal, who is really a Christian, is going to desire to live in the light. They're going to do that. They're going to live in the light. And the word light is one of the Bible's favorite words for what is true or for what is holy, what is pure, what is not contaminated by sin. That's the light. So verse five again, this is the message we have heard from God and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John dives right in in verse five and he calls out one of the false teachings of this of his day, namely that God is not perfect, that God is not sinless. There were false teachers who said that the Christian God is like all the other gods. With a small g that made up the, 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 the pantheon of, of deities in first century Greek culture. And there were dozens of these gods. And they all had human attributes. Human qualities. And so the false teachers were saying, God's like all the rest. He, but but that's, not what, that's not what John says. John says that God is what? He is light. He is light. He doesn't say that, that God is, is love, although he will say that in chapter 4. That's not what he says here. And he doesn't say God is all-powerful, though, of course, he certainly is all-powerful. He is God. The Holy Spirit says through John that God is light. And by saying that, he is affirming God's holiness. He's affirming God's sinless perfection. There's no dark side To God, he is completely holy. He is perfectly perfect. That's verse five. In the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13 says that God's eyes are too pure to even look upon sin. He's holy. And first Timothy, chapter six, verse 15 says, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in what? Unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. And we say Amen, amen to that. And then, then the very same truth is declared about Jesus, who is also God. Hebrews four fifteen, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without what? Amen. Without sin. Jesus is holy. He is perfectly perfect. It was A.W. Tozer who said on one occasion, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll think about that one more time. I'll read it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So I'll ask you, church family. Brothers, sisters, what is the first thing that pops into your thoughts when you hear God's name? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Tozer's right. That's going to reveal a lot about us. John doesn't start with what the prevailing culture might wish God was like. But with a declaration of what God is like, he is holy, he is true, he is light, right? He is light. Sinless angels in Isaiah chapter 6, we're told, are hiding their faces in the presence of God because he is holy, 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 right? That's what they're doing right now. While we're worshiping, that's what they're doing. Is the brilliance of God's holiness, his sinless perfection, what pops into your head when you when you hear his name? How sad when when Jesus meets a a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus one night secretly. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and wants to learn more about him. And in the course of their conversation, Jesus says this. He says in in John 319, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself, isn't he? He says light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We choose the darkness over the light, Jesus says. In verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That word walk, it's in the present tense. It's a present tense verb. It means to to continually keep on walking, to continually do this. The the word walk is is, is another word for living. So John's talking about doing life from day to day. If someone were to say that they are in a faith relationship with God and in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus, and, and yet they continually walk in darkness... In falsehood and in sin, pursuing the things that are the very opposite of God's heart, his best, the very opposite of light. If someone's professing Jesus but living in the darkness, they are what? They are liars. They're lying to themselves, they're lying to others, and they're lying to God. It's just not true. Though many try, and we've all in this room tried, It is impossible to have fellowship with God and keep one foot in darkness and the other in the light. Right. Absolutely impossible to do that. A lifestyle of dark living trumps any claim to be in fellowship with God. And that's what really what John is saying. He's confronting the lie of his day, which is why then John says in verse seven, that those who really belong to God, who are truly in Jesus by faith, have an ongoing, continual desire to live in the light. They hate the darkness. They want to have no part with the darkness. They live in the light. But if we walk, verse 7 says, and again, that's a present tense verb, just like in verse 6, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all Sin And when we hear those words, man, we ought to interrupt with an amen. All sin clean. Verse seven, it, it, it stands in such sharp contrast to verse six. It focuses on true Christian fellowship, which John says is born out of our shared faith in Jesus and a genuine desire to run from sin. This morning, we are Idaho Bible Church. The only reason you're here is because we share a common faith in the person of Jesus, right? That's that's the truth, right? That's the only reason you're here is because we worship Jesus and you love Jesus. The question is, are you living in the light of Jesus? That's really what verse seven is talking about. John says that those who are drawn to the light, who walk in the light are the real deal. And at the heart of their realness is their faith in the shed blood of Jesus. They know that the guilt of all their darkness, the penalty of all their sin, has has been washed away. It's been re- removed. It's been made clean by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Martin Luther, uh, the name you many of you would know, great reformal reformer of the 1500s, he tells about a dream he had once in which Satan brought to him a large scroll, which then Satan unrolled in front of him. And and on that scroll were listed all of Luther's sins, all of them. Luther doesn't argue with Satan about what's on the scroll. It's all true. Every bit of it is true. Then in his dream, he says that he takes a a quill and he dips it in red ink and he scrawls across that scroll 1 John 1, 7, in the words, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses me from all sin. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then Luther says, the devil flees, the devil runs. It is a true and genuine faith in Jesus' cross and his empty tomb that makes us, that transforms us into lovers and seekers of the light one who deeply desires God's truth and holiness oh church family that we all of us would be accurate reflections of that desire but that would be our longing to live in the light but having said this john spirit directed now knows that even the true follower of jesus the one who longs for that intimate fellowship with god that that only faith in him makes possible can't go for very long Without being tripped up by sin. It just doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen in your life. It sure doesn't happen in my life. Though our old sin nature was dealt a death blow at the cross. And and, and will one day breathe its last breath. That old sin nature in you and in me. It is still alive. And it constantly desires to express itself. and, And desires to do that far more often than we wish that it did. And so the scroll of our sins, even though we're Christians, the scroll of our sin is still being added to, isn't it? Right now. What do we do when that happens? Brothers, sister, what do we do? Even though we determine to live in the light and deplore the deeds of darkness, we must know what to do when sin against our God and the Lord Jesus comes into our life. What do I do? John says that a true follower of Jesus, a distinguishing feature of a true follower of Jesus is that they will be quick to confess their sin and swiftly lay claim to the promise, the promise of forgiveness. We practice the promise. It's number two there on your note page. In verse eight, John heads in this direction by referring to another of the false teachings of his day that was circulating around, and it went like this If we say that we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Unbelievably, in John's day, some felt like they were without sin, but they didn't even have a sin nature. We say that's incredible. That's ridiculous. Nobody would think that way. A few years ago, a three year study of professing Christians from across all denominational lines here in the United States appeared in an article entitled Pick and choose Christianity. Well, that's revealing, isn't it? Just the title. Summarizing some of the results of this three-year study. Not surprisingly, most church members pick and choose which of the teachings of Christianity that they will accept and the ones that they will leave behind. One of the least popular teachings concerns sin. Although 98% would said that they believed in personal sin, only 57% accepted the traditional teaching that all people are sinful and fully. Listen to this fully one third allowed that while they make mistakes, they are not sinful themselves. Wow, that's exactly what I thought when I read that. That's amazing, church family, and it is disturbing. You know, if if you really do see yourself without sin, then what you're really saying is, I don't need a savior. Right. And so, you know, that those persons are lost and they're going to spend a Christless eternity separated from God because of that conviction. That's that's happening right now. In verse eight, John calls such a person deceived and devoid of the truth. There's no light. Proverbs 20, verse 9 asks, Who can say I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Who can say that? Nobody, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 really lays it out. This is God speaking. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That's God's assessment of our hearts apart from Jesus. And let's not forget that not only... Are we talking here about the the sins that we choose to do willfully? We're also talking about failing to do the right thing, which is also sin, right? We, 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 We fail to do the right thing. So we're talking about sins of commission and also sins of omission. You're familiar with these two terms. Reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who asked her fifth grade class the question, boys and girls, what do you think? Sins of omission are. And one little girl raised her hand and said, they're the ones we ought to have committed, but we haven't. (laughs) We omitted them. Oh, we got to go back and pick those up before life's over. (laughs) The one who loves the Lord Jesus would never think that they're without sin. Jesus died for them because they're sinners. For the true Christian, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? We are keenly aware of how often we miss God's mark, which is really what the word sin means in our Bibles. It's an archery term. The Holy Spirit Spirit borrowed it from the archery world. Uh, It was a term that meant when you shot your arrow, you missed the target. And so the Holy Spirit took that word and applied it to sin in our lives. God says, here's the target of my truth. Here's, here's my righteousness. Here's my holiness. Here's what, here's what I want you to hit with your life as you, as, you, as you think, as you speak, as you act. This is the target, God says. And when we don't hit that target, we miss that target. That's called sin. And so John says in verse 9, when that happens in our lives as a follower of Jesus, if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promise of forgiveness upon confession to our Heavenly Father. As we take a closer look at this incredible verse, let's break it down into its key words and phrases. And uh, that will help us, I think, to see what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And I've done that really for you on your note page if if you've got that handy. Verse 9 begins with what word? Begins with the word if this lets us know right away that confession is something that we must choose to do. No one's going to make us confess. There is an option not to confess. So so we know that. So that's that's really key. Confession will be an act of our heart and our will as a follower of Jesus. It's something that we determine that we will do. And the word we. This is for each and every one of us. John includes himself here. Even though he was one of the disciples, he says, man, I need to do this. And it's something very personal. Confession is something we do. We do that. We don't have to go to a pastor. We don't have to go to a priest and confess our sin. We do this before God. Next, if we confess our sins. Church family, the word confess. What does it mean? Well, literally, it means to say the same thing. That's what the Greek word meant. And so for us, it means to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. That's what it means to confess. When we confess, we're agreeing with God that we have either willingly or ignorantly, by commission or omission, we have acted in a way that is opposed to God's will. We're agreeing with Him in that. We didn't make a mistake. We didn't stumble. We didn't blunder. We sinned, right? We just say it that way. I sinned. We broke the heart of God. We opposed Him. Our sin cost Him the death of His Son. He hates our sin. He abhors the sin in our lives. When we confess, we're agreeing with Him in that. We hate it too. And this word confess is also in the present tense, which means that we are to continually be doing this as a follower of Jesus for the whole of our life before we see him face to face. Continually confessing. It's not a one and done. It's ongoing, continual confession. If we keep on confessing, what's the next phrase? He is faithful. The Holy Spirit's going to rest the forgiveness of sinners On God's own nature, his own character as the one who is faithful. That word can also be translated trustworthy. God can be counted on to do what he says he's going to do. If we will confess, he will do what? He will forgive. That's a promise. Psalm 100 verse 5 declares this. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. He will never not be faithful to what he has said he will do. And, and in this verse, uh, Numbers twenty three nineteen, we kicked off our entire series on the promises of God with this particular verse. God is not a man that, we sh- that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? What's the answer, church family? No, no way. No way. If he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. Why? He's faithful. He's faithful. If we keep on confessing, he is faithful and then what? He is just. Because he, God is just, what does he have to do? He has to deal with sin, doesn't he? He has to punish sin. He can't just ignore it. He can't look the other way. His just character will not allow him to do that. But thankfully, he has sent the perfect substitute, in the person of Jesus to take our place, to take the punishment that was meant for us. So God sends Jesus so that he can, in one at the same time, remain just. He'll deal with our sin and he can also be gracious toward us. And we say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Romans 3.26. He did it. In other words, he sent Jesus to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies, which means that we're no longer condemned, who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, if we keep on confessing, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins. To forgive in scripture means to let go. It means to release. It means to to set free. In fact, it actually goes much deeper than that. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel a beautiful, beautiful picture of what forgiveness really means to him. Every year, the high priest would symbolically transfer the sins of the people of Israel to what was called the scapegoat. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, it comes out of Leviticus chapter 16 if you want more of the details. But, but what would happen is once a year, the high priest would, would, would put his hands on the head of a goat and and impute onto the goat symbolically all of the sin of the nation in that moment. And then, do you know what happened to the goat? The goat would be sent out into the wilderness alone and left there, never to be seen again. And God was painting a picture of how he sees forgiveness in the lives of his people. This is what he was saying. He would impute or 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 transfer the sin in your life and my life and put it on the person of his son Jesus. Who would then take it to the cross with him where he would deal with it. He would die for it and then we would never see it again. Is that cool? That's more than cool. That's unbelievable. Psalm 103.12. It's a beautiful reminder of just how far God removes our sin from us through faith in Jesus. Can we just read this verse right off the screen together, church family? Let's do it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. How far is the east from the west? Oh, pretty far. (laughs) Like infinitely far. They never meet, right? If we keep on confessing, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, 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 all of the unrighteousness in your life. Sin pollutes, but the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus washes away all of the guilt, all of the Uh, all that makes us unclean before a holy God. So says this verse, so many people, and you know some of them right now, you know them by name. So many people think they have to clean themselves up before they can come to God, right? When I get myself together, then I'll come to church with you. But I can't do it right now. How do we come to Jesus. We come filthy, right, Greg? We come filthy. We come dirty, don't we? And then we simply admit that we're sinners and we let Jesus clean us up. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says it this way, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Three terms to tell us how clean we are. Through faith in Jesus, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an incredible promise from God to us. This, says John, is the distinguishing feature of those who are truly in Jesus. They love the light and they never stop bringing their their, their sins to their God In humility, confessing it to him. And God never stops forgiving them when they do. Do you believe that? But that's where an honest question comes up. Very practical question. If you flip your note page over, it's there at the top of the page. Why do I need to confess my sins if God has already forgiven them through my faith in Jesus? You ever ask that question? that's really at the heart of verse 9 as well. Well, here's the answer. In our relationship with God, it's important that we understand the difference between what we will call here in this moment, the difference between judicial forgiveness in Jesus and relational forgiveness in Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to really focus in for just a moment. Stay with me tight. Stay with me close as we talk about these truths, because they are very important to us. As we do life with Jesus. Judicial forgiveness. in Jesus. What, what is that? What is that? Well, here is what it looks like. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. The Holy Spirit says this through Paul's pen. Therefore, since we have been, past tense, justified, means pronounced, not guilty, not condemned, by faith, faith in Jesus alone, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have that this morning? Through faith in Jesus. Justified. Legal term comes right out of the courtroom of Paul's day. Justified. We have been justified in the courtroom of heaven. God has legally declared us no longer condemned who have put our faith in in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus There's a judicial forgiveness that God can grant to us because his justice has been satisfied. The sin has been paid for, not by us, but by the Lord Jesus. And because of that, we have peace, peace with God. That's judicial forgiveness. The guilt of our sin is no longer separating us from him. All of our past, present, and future sin has been forgiven on a judicial basis, meaning that we will never suffer the eternal consequences of the sin in our life. Jesus took care of that. And God declared it done. Once again, the truth of Psalm 103.12 just rings in my ears. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's judicial forgiveness, isn't it? Or how about Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's judicial forgiveness. The once for all never to be repealed Declaration by God that you and he are at peace with one another. You know, when Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. He meant it, didn't he? He meant it. Our judicial, sometimes called positional forgiveness, was obtained then and there at the cross forever. Amen and amen. But 1-9 of 1 John is not thinking about judicial forgiveness. It's talking about relational forgiveness. Well, what's that? Well, a good illustration might be found in what takes place in the relationship between a father and his child. Let's say between a father and a son. When his son says by his actions, maybe by his words, but by his actions, he says, Dad, I really don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. Parents, if that ever happened to you. Yeah, you know this moment, right? You have lived this, this, this moment. So this happens between a father and his son. There is rebellion, there's disobedience, there's pride, there's self-will that has entered the relationship. What happens to the relationship between the father and the son when that occurs? What happens? Well, there's a breach created, right? There's a breach created. There's the, 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 their fellowship, Their intimacy, their ability to communicate with one another, their joy is wounded. It's it's hindered. Relational closeness is lost when sin enters the relationship between a father and his son. Does the father love his son any less? No. That's not diminished one bit. And the son is still the father's son despite the sin that has come between them, right? He never stops being the son. But the relationship, is suffering because of the sin. The intimacy is suffering. We see this so powerfully in in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I'm sure some of you are already ahead of me thinking about that. In that story, you remember this? The, 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 The fellowship between the father and the son is just dramatically impacted when the son chooses to rebel, to sin, to go off on his own. And it remains that way. There's this fracture in the relationship until the son comes back in the story and, and he's broken and he's repentant and he admits to his dad that he has sinned greatly. But when he does that instantly, what does the dad do in the story? He throws his arms around his son, right? And kisses him and puts new clothes on him and lavishes his love on his son because he couldn't do that before, and the joy and the intimacy that sin had stolen is restored to them once again. That's relational forgiveness. See that's first John one nine. That's us with God. God longs to have us come to him when sin comes between us and him, and it will it will. And he longs to hear us confess to say the same thing about our sin that he would say about our sin. Not because he likes talking about sin. But because our confession is the proof to him and to ourselves that we know that we've sinned and that we hate what we've done. We want the light, but we walked in the dark. As we confess, he lavishes his relational forgiveness on us. And both of us get to experience again the joy of a restored relationship. Did the judicial forgiveness ever change? No. Never did it. Never changed. God is still our Father. His love never wavers. Just like with the Father in Luke chapter 15, the son went off, but the Father never stopped loving him. And he never stopped being his dad. But as soon as we are aware that we have sinned, and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit working in us, and we sense the loss of joy and closeness and prayer communication that we had with our Heavenly Father, we must humbly come and confess. Because only then does the promise of the Father come into play. And our relational, our relational connection is restored. Forgiveness is given. So two distinguishing features of a son or daughter of the king Desire to live in the light and practice confession that results in the promise of forgiveness. Those two things need to be happening in the life of a true believer. The question is, are they happening in your life? Are they happening in my life? May these be the distinguishing features, brothers and sisters, of you and me, so that not only will we know, but our community will know that we are lovers of the Lord Jesus. Yes? Yeah. Now, before we come to the Lord's table and we we call to mind once again what makes possible this judicial and relational forgiveness that we've been talking about before we think about the blood and the and the body of the Lord Jesus here and his death on the cross, I thought it would be helpful if you could actually hear a confession prayer and watch the promise of forgiveness unfold. We have that so beautifully in Psalm thirty two. And I've reprinted it there on your page, so if you have the page, you're good to go. If you don't have one of those note pages, maybe you would want to turn it there. This is the prayer that David, Israel's great king, prayed to God following a very dark season in his life. When he threw caution to the wind, he fell into the black hole of of only thinking about himself and caring about himself. Grievous sin followed, but then so too did confession. Conviction and confession Now, see if you can, as you hear this psalm, maybe just close your eyes and and listen and see if you can imagine yourself talking to your heavenly father in this way. It's the way he would long to hear you talk to him as you come with your sin. Here's how it goes. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David uses three different words to describe to God what he has done. Transgression, sin, iniquity. And he tells how that has devastating consequences in his life, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here is the promise. Forgiveness by God to the broken and contrite heart. Verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then God speaks in verse eight. Reflecting that the sin-strained relationship between he and David is, is now mended. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Glad, joyful, rejoicing. That's what the promise of God's forgiveness produces in the relationship between himself and his kids when they confess. Isn't that beautiful? We're about to, to remember what makes that all possible for us this morning. So I would just ask you to bow with me in a moment of prayer as we prepare for the Lord's table. Oh, you have you have given us so much in such a short period of time. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. Thank you for the challenge to think about how we're living from you for you. Are we living in the light? Are we desiring the light? Are we hungering for the truth? Are we pursuing holiness? Is that is that who we really are? desiring to live in the light. And are we bringing our sin to you? For surely, Lord, you know it. We confess. We sin far too much. Though we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we still have that old nature, and it longs to rule. We're so sorry. How we thank you for this amazing vehicle of of verse 9, that we can come to you, Agree with you about our sin. Confess it. Hate it like you hate it. And then have your forgiveness. And your joy. Thank you. In our room this morning, we are all in need of forgiveness. We come to this table now in need of forgiveness. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood offered up in our place, making peace between God and and us. Thank you. We celebrate you in these moments in Jesus' name. Amen.